Hello, and welcome to the Writers Guild Foundation podcast. I'm Enid Portuguese, Communications Director at the Foundation. Today's recording is from our Writers on Writing event with Stephen Knight, the screenwriter who brought us thrilling dramas such as Eastern Promises and Locke, as well as the creator and showrunner of Peaky Blinders and the upcoming BBC and FX series Taboo, starring Tom Hardy. Guiding him through his prolific career was Deadline Hollywood senior editor Dominic Patton, who spent some time talking with Knight about the decisions he made on three seasons of Peaky Blinders, including how he designs each season. We also learn what Knight prefers between film and TV and what philosophy helps him deal with writer's block. As always, check out WGFoundation.org for our list of upcoming events and sign up for our weekly email newsletter, which you can also do on our website to hear about those new events first. But for now, enjoy Writers on Writing with Steve and I. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Thanks for being here on a uh, Tuesday night where you could be at the beach or at a movie. But you chose to be here to educate yourselves, which is even better. My name is Larry Andrews. I'm the current president of the Writers Guild Foundation, and thank you for coming here. It's going to be a good night. It's going to be a great night. Well, we have coming up some really cool events. Next Tuesday night, we have a night about screenplay competitions and contests, which I'm sure many of you have attempted to or may have won. An entire panel of people who have won Disney or have won CBS and what that process is like and what life is, is after we have a great moderator for that night, which is me, so please come back next Tuesday. On the 16th, we have careers in digital storytelling with one of the creators of Pokemon Go. So you can celebrate him or hate him in any way you want to do that. And on September 15th, we have our annual event, Sublime Prime Time, the nominees for Best Writing for the Emmys for this coming year. It's a phenomenal night at the Writers Guild Theater on September 15th. What is an outrage is that our guest tonight has not won an Emmy. He has won awards around the world except the American Emmys. So we've, we've got to change that in 2017 and 2018. Let's make that happen. Our moderator tonight will get into those nitty-gritty details. He is a senior editor at Deadline Hollywood, Dominic Patton. Good evening. How are you guys doing? Somebody said to me, um, oh my God, you're going out into a room full of writers. And I was like, I live in a room full of writers. <laughs> um, I'm sure all of you know why we're here to see Mr. Stephen Knight. How many of you are Peaky Blinders fans? Well, that's terrible because, you know, he's not very proud of that show. But listen, um, Stephen has had a tremendous career where he has pivoted from many genres and mediums. Um, you know, he's written novels. He's written plays. He co-created Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which is where most people stop their careers, actually. But then he moves on and he writes 2002's Dirty Pretty Things, which earned him an Oscar nomination, and the very vivid Eastern Promises from 2007, which the great David Cronenberg directed. And then Stephen himself directed such dramas as 2003's Loke with Tom Hart as the lead, and had also high-caliber people like the Night Manager's Olivia Coleman in it as the cast as well. He's writing the sequel to World War Z. He's also writing the upcoming Allied, which happens to have also Mr. Brad Pitt in it. And of course, for the small screen, Stephen has written Peaky Blinders, which is now in its third season on Netflix and on the BBC. Now, how many of you binge-watched season three when it came out? Really? 
You know what? That's great, because it is meant to be watched, I think, as a full story. He also has coming now from the BBC and FX the eight-episode Taboo, which also has Mr. Tom Hardy in it, which Tom helped co-create with Stephen and with Tom's father, Chip. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Stephen Knight. So I want to start off sort of at what would be the end of most discussions like this, but I always remember when I was out in the audience for things like this, I always wanted to know with extremely successful people like you, do you ever get writer's block? Um, no. Uh, I'm, I'm, touching, I'm touching some wood, but um, I've found that if, if it's not coming out the way you want it to come out is to, um, well, two things, either do someone else or pretend you're not really doing it for real. So pretend you're writing it and it's not the real thing it's not for anybody else's eyes you're just messing about you're just doing anything and then just do anything 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 until it's like you know if you've got a biro and it's not working and you, you do that it? for a bit for a bit and then it comes back again so for you now when you go what is your process when it comes to writing for instance for peaky i mean how you know because it, it's unusual in britain it's fairly common that a writer will write a series in America, you usually have the creators slash showrunners will do the first episode, maybe the second, but then there's the writer's room kind of kick in and various people start getting involved with collaborations and sometimes whole new people are brought in. So what is that process like for you, for instance, with Peaky as you lead up to a season? Yeah, I mean, with Peaky uh, in particular, uh, we did sort of experiment with that system, but in the end, uh, in the first series, I wrote all six and then second series I wrote I've written all of them since uh, purely I think because it's such a personal thing to me and it, I, I feel as if you get the idea and you get the momentum and you start and you go it, it's it's sort of easier and better to just go go with that thing because it's it's all coming from things that you know about but uh, with other stuff with other projects and of course it's more collaborative and collegiate and stuff but with Peaky it's been I think it's 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 proven to be more effective if I just sit down and do it now you know one of the quotes from season three that I, I really loved I think Tatiana says it to Tommy at one point she says you break the law but obey the rules as a writer as a, as a director I think, especially with the film you did with Tom just a few years ago, where it's basically a man in a car mm -hmm. for almost two hours. Um, kind of one locked off shot there. Um, you do that to some extent, too. I know, that was corny, wasn't it? I know. Um, you do that, too. So I want to get a sense from you about that, about your approach to writing and how, what you see as the rules and what you see as the, as the laws you need to break. Well, I think that there's, a, there's something about the film industry in particular, the movie industry in particular, where it attracts rules. And I think it's because there's a lot of money at stake. And you, you can understand it because people are spending money so they want to know it's going to be returned. But I do feel there's a tendency, like imagine if a painter paints a painting and it's really good and, it's, and people buy it. And somebody says, well, 40% of that paint was blue. So the next one you do, can you make 40% of the paint blue? Because it worked. <laughs> it worked last time. And 20%'s got to be a bit orange. And, you know, it would be really odd to say that to a painter and in any other art form. But in filmmaking, the rules, there's the three act rule, there's the arc, there's all of those things that are, are, are talked about as if they are absolutely the truth. 
But the truth is that, in my opinion, that what it is is you're inviting people into a room, turning off the lights and asking them to look at a screen for 90 minutes. And the rest is up for grabs. You can do anything. So what would be, for instance, from you as a, as a fan of film, where you think that's been successful, where people have broken the rules, and ones that have inspired you to that extent? I mean, the, 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 there's many examples. For example, um, It's a Wonderful Life. The angel doesn't appear until near the end. <laughs> if you tried that now, it would be, well, hang on a minute, it's about the angel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the angel's got to appear before the end of the first act. We've got to, and then do it in flashback. Somebody would definitely say that. Well, everybody would say that because that's the rules. But there's someone who made a film where the twist didn't happen or was even talked about until nearly the end of the film. And, of course, it works. And so I think I I completely understand it because if people are investing a lot of money, painting a painting doesn't cost anything. Making a film costs money. And so people are going to want to think that, well, that made money, so I'm going to do something that's, equally going to make money but I do think that in the end it gets narrower and narrower and I think that's what's happening at the moment so you know the big screen stuff is all similar to each each other but what about the small screen I mean I I never not quite sure if we should refer to Netflix as television anymore but let's just call it the small screen to that extent in what people now call no pun intended Peaky Blinders creator peak TV era where are those rules now on the small screen? I think that for some reason, I don't quite know what it is, that um, there is people are more prepared to do stories that are less conventional on TV. They're prepared to allow, and in this room, I think we would all agree, it works because they're giving the writers the power. Because the writers have got the story, the writers know what the story is, give them the authority over the product and you will probably have something more successful than if the story becomes this sort of tennis ball that's knocked around quite a bit. But in TV, people are prepared to do that. And as a result of that, I think television has you know, expanded what is possible. They've changed the way that stories can be told. There's a lot of bold, brilliant stuff coming out of America, which is fantastic. And I think it's because the writer has been given more of the authority. Now, in terms of that, in terms of your own authority, one of the things that you've done with Peaky is you have a lot of strong, strong female characters. And you, 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 don't, you treat them in a way that just even a few years ago would have been in many senses inconceivable. They would have been, yeah, there's the, there's the aunt and there's the spy slash wife slash eye candy, and eventually they just fade into the background because the boys are going to take over and do the big heist or what have you. That's something very different that you do with Peaky. And that you've done in other projects of yours. Why is that? And why do you think there is still a tendency for people to fall back into the default of stereotypes? Well, I think, again, it's it's part of the, the thing about this is an industry that attracts rules and people who, and not enforce rules, but suggest that the rules exist. I think that it's not anything that I've done particularly, you know, for any noble reason or anything. I think if you look at most domestic situations, women are in charge women are stronger in those situations and if you take if you transcribed a normal day and then read it you'd say wow the female characters are so strong in this <laughs> you know not because maybe anybody, not quite those words no, no, Stephen. No, no, but, no, but if you then said this is fiction you say wow the female characters are so strong but only because that's because they are mm. you know and, and it would be it's a i think it's a decision 
to suggest that that's not the case. You have to decide that, well, we can't do that. Whereas if you just do what's really that, like in my Like in the case of Helen. Like in the case of my extended family, Helen is based on a a real person who was my dad's auntie called Aunt Polly, who was, everybody was terrified of her. (laughs) You know, and she was struck, and the women then, and it'd be the same in the States, you know, in in the turn of the century and into the 20s, women were having nine children and were keeping the family together and were strong as oxes, physically strong as well. And it's not fiction. It's not like, oh, let's be nice. It, that's just what happened. So to decide to pretend that didn't happen would be a decision, which I think would be quite an odd one. Now, what is it like for you working with Helen as, as that character as Polly? Because that character has definitely evolved over the three seasons. I'm sure there's going to be more evolution going into seasons four and five. You know, from a writer point of view, working with an actor over a sustained period of time. Well, I think with, with her, with, with all of the actors, you find out what, what they do and, and what they bring to the to the character and it makes life easier because after the first series you know what what their strengths are and and obviously with Helen you very quickly became clear that this was about Tommy and Helen as the the the, the balancing act because he wants one thing and she wants something else um, and so then once you know that and you know that both of the actors can pull it off then you you can use a sort of shorthand even in your own mind, knowing that you can just use two words because everybody knows who she is, they know who, she, who he is, and therefore those two words can say a ton of things. It makes life a lot easier, but she's so brilliant and um, so frightening as well, which is, I mean, in person as well. <laughs> and what about Mr. Murphy here, who's making keeping an eye on you throughout these yeah. proceedings? Yeah, well, I mean, we're... The, the, Karen was telling the story today about when he first he wanted to do it and he came and he'd read the script and said I want to do it and someone said well you know because he's he's not the biggest person in the world and understatement he's, uh, and he's lovely and he's a lovely person and he's nice and you know and someone said well you know how why do you think you can play this really tough hard scary gangster and he just leant forward and said I'm an actor <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, you know, but he's so good at it. And what he said, you know, in interviews that uh, he gets into it and it's difficult to get out of it and he changes the way he walks, the way he breathes, the way he does everything. So Now, another actor who's on Peaky also is Paul Anderson. Paul Anderson has talked about how, as Arthur, that mustache is not his Mm. and that he takes it off and puts it on because he honestly doesn't want to be that guy 24 hours a day. You know, it did feel like that's sort of a puncturing of the myth of the method actor. Well, I think it... Both things are true. I mean, I think it's a bit like if you're a soldier and you wear a uniform. If you're in the uniform, you're going to salute and you're going to do this, you're going to do that, and you're going to kill people or you're going to be killed. When you take it off, you don't expect to have to do those things. And I think um, with the moustache for him, it, it, that is I'm no longer Arthur. I, I actually think the idea that you that taking that thing off removes something in your head is actually quite significant mm-hmm. um, because it's in his head as well. Now, another actor who, you know, who's on Peaky and who you've worked with now on, I would say, at least two projects now going into Taboo is Mr. Tom Hardy. Give us a sense of what that relationship has been like and how you and he and Tom's father, Chips, how you came up with Taboo. Um, it was, uh, I can't remember what you oh, Do you guys know what Taboo is? Okay. It's a bad thing. You're not supposed to do it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, ha, ha. 
More writer's humor. Yeah. Not working today. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's. Uh, I mean, there's a. It will be out. I think in January here, which is a eight-part BBC and FX series with starring Tom Hardy and Jonathan Price, uh, set in eighteen fourteen in London, uh, about an adventurer who takes on pretty much everybody in the world: the American government, British government, East India Company. But the idea of a returning adventurer was around and I was asked to come and meet Tom to talk about this idea. Um, he was parking his car. We were at the Soho Hotel in Soho and while he was parking his car, I said to his manager, while, while we're having this conversation about this television series, I've got this idea called Locke about uh, somebody... Oh, so you did, a two, you did a two for one. Well, I said, you know, if you don't mind, I'll mention it, see if he's interested. So the end of the meeting, we did a deal that I would do taboo if he did lock. So, so this is advice to writers who want to be sure directors. Get them while you got them. Well, while they're parking. <laughs> <laughs> so that doesn't help so much in, in L.A. because everyone valets. Yeah, that's yeah, true. You have to do your meetings in New York or London. Exactly. So now working, you've worked with Tom, obviously, on several projects. How has that relationship between the two of you evolved, and, and how do you find? Obviously, you enjoy working with him. Yeah, I mean, he's a, obviously a brilliant actor and um, comes at everything from a completely different direction, which is great. Um, and it's one of those things, you know, it's not like... Um, we even we don't socialize we don't know each other particularly well but there's something about the way that it works when if i'm writing it or directing it and he's doing it it seems to work well so it's when you get someone of his caliber who's prepared to do your work you just think right i'll do this and do this and do this until you stop and he says he wants to carry on doing my stuff so that's what we're doing at the moment and i'm directing a film with him in it in april next year which will be another oh, so project number four. Yes, exactly. You guys are like Scorsese and DiCaprio now, aren't you? If I'm going for it. Um, why do you think, you know, for many, many years, I, I like to call them posh porn, you know, like Downton Abbey type shows, massively popular here in North America, right? The, the ye magic kingdom of England. Peaky is entirely the polar opposite of that. And yet in many ways has now become, if not as popular, sometimes more popular. I mean, it has such a dedicated following. Why do you think that is? Um, Was this the time for that show? Maybe. I think maybe, um, you know, what was 100 years ago changes as time passes, obviously. So um, I do feel that there has always been a tendency in Britain where if anything happened more than 100 years ago, Everyone acts in a particular way and speaks in a particular way that nobody ever spoke. Nobody ever said, I do not believe so. That and everybody wears white linen yeah. suits. And, you know, I do not, I cannot, I will not. As if nobody ever said, I don't, I won't, I can't. You know, but they did. And, and, and it affects the way people are because it becomes sort of sub-Shakespeare or sub, yeah, sub-Shakespearean in a way in that the, there is a particular formality to the dialogue which then causes a formality to the way people perform. But people love it, which is fine, you know, because it, what it does is puts a distance between what you're looking at and your own life. And so the escapism is even stronger because you're seeing things that you think, well, you know, it, it's, it's a heightened reality because everyone is, everyone is speaking as if it was written down 10 minutes ago. You know, and, and it's, it's a very particular thing about British period drama. And I think... 
it's fine because what Britain does is export that to the world because that's what people expect. It's like a Western coming from the United States, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a particular, there's gunslingers and gunfights and, and saloons because that's the genre that it comes from and that's what people expect and that's what people want. There's nothing wrong with that. But I do think that you, you, you then move it on or you can move it or you don't have to move it on, but if you want to, you can try. You know? Now, you came by Peaky honestly. This is really based on your family. I mean, you had a relative who was a member of the real life Peaky Blinders. They all were. I think. And you, you're, and you're like the honorary mayor of Birmingham. I mean, you're you're walking around promoting like studios there, and and it was the town that created the industrial revolution, et cetera, et cetera. Though people, some people in Manchester might disagree. No. Um, but talk. Let's talk a little bit about that because so often in in North America, when we talk about the UK, um, we're really talking about London. Or we're talking about sort of offshoots of it, but they're all through the lens of London. Um, Peaky's isn't. Peaky is, it's a Birmingham story. Mm-hmm. And in fact, like, for instance, in, in the final episode of this of season three, there's that whole speech at the beginning at the orphanage about, like, this is Birmingham. We're Birmingham people. We're going to raise these children here, et cetera, et cetera. Are you running for office? <laughs> oh, God, no. No, but I think Birmingham is... Um it's a, I suppose the the equivalent would be Chicago, I think, um, and it's a big sort of industrial city. And in the twenties, it was just manufacturing everything, you know, for the the British Empire, guns and bullets and weapons and chains and all cars and everything. So, the the city twenty four hours a day was banging stuff out, and it was smoky and noisy and horrible. And both my parents grew up in Small Heath, which is in the middle of it, basically, and. There was a lot of um, illegal bookmakers because gambling off track was illegal. So my mom, when she was eight or nine years old, was a bookies runner, which meant she would, because they wouldn't arrest children, so she she was given a basket of washing. And she'd walk down the street and people would walk by with a piece of paper with the name of the horse, the race meeting and their code name because they wouldn't use their real name, and wrap it in like six pence or ten pence or whatever, and drop it in the basket as she walked by. So she'd then walk past the dog on the chain, knock on the door, and there would be the bookie, big fat bookie with his gun, (laughs) and give him the money, and he'd give her sixpence. And then my dad's uncles were the Peaky Blinders. They were bookies as well. And they told me these stories when I was a kid. So when they're kids, they're looking at these people in what was a pretty desperate part of the world it was very poor but as kids these gangsters were royalty they were amazing you know they were absolutely glamorous and my dad told me he said when he was about eight his dad gave him a message and said go and give this to your uncles the sheldons and he, they were the peaky blind so he ran barefoot knocked on the door the door opens a big waft of beer and cigarette smoke and he said there's nine men around the table immaculately dressed with their hats slouched down guns table covered in money in a place where no one had money, drinking whiskey and beer out of jam jars because they wouldn't spend any of that money on cups or glasses. Or and they were immaculate. And just those images made me think of that this world was really interesting. And then the point is, for an English audience, not so much for... Because uh, I think what's brilliant about American writers and American fiction is that maybe because this is a new adventure relatively Americans are not afraid to mythologize their own environment Mm -hmm. they're not embarrassed about it you know you can have songs about Phoenix you can have songs about (laughs) you know you can have songs you can't do that in England because it's weird and wrong and you can't mythologize it but 
my decision was well, to mythologize. Know, the, ha the Happy Monday is pretty mythologized. Yeah, it's, always <laughs> it's always down. It's never yeah. like. And and the thought, my thought was that my parents mythologized it. Then when they told it to me when I was a kid, I doubly mythologized it, and don't get rid of it, which is yeah. what an American would do. You know, like <laughs> a Western is about 19th century agricultural farm laborers. They just they used to herd cows. And yet America has turned it into this massive, fantastic genre. But do you think on the other, the other hand, though, is that the flip of that is that, that there's kind of a monoculturing happening. You know, so, um, you know, f for many years, if you watched American TV, mm -hmm. you weren't really watching Americans. You were watching this amalgamation of Texas, New York, and Los Angeles that kind of was all thrown together <laughs> with different accents that anybody who wasn't from that place would mm -hmm. identify. I mean, it was the common thing you'd watch, you know, if you, I grew up in New York, you'd watch a movie about New York and be like, that guy couldn't get from there to there unless in three hours yeah, like yeah, they made it yeah, sound like yeah. five minutes right <laughs> you know it feels in many ways that peaky is a pushback against that that this is this is a this is a tribal localized mm -hmm. history mm -hmm. it's not anything else it's not trying to be mm -hmm. the 20th century done light mm -hmm. it's this thing and yeah. to that what my point is you introduce some real life characters winston churchill being the most significant mm -hmm. obviously mm -hmm. and not the winston churchill of we will fight them on the beaches mm -hmm. but the winston churchill of dirty-handed home yeah. secretary crap yeah. i'm interested in that and how that why you decided to bring in some real life characters there and other characters who we may not realize are real life characters i what i try and do for what it's worth is is if you're looking at a period of history in a, in a particular place if you look at even a cursory look on the internet, what went on, of real people and what happened, you'll always find things that happened and people that existed that you wouldn't invent because they're too unlikely. You know, fiction obeys the rules where, and reality doesn't obey the rules because there are no rules. And, Back to these rules again. Yeah, and, you know, you, you find a character who does the weirdest thing. And, and if you just take that one bit of reality and then use it, and put a couple of them together and then use them and join the dots in whichever way you want to do. It's almost like when you get to the bit of reality, it's, it's, you can have a breather. I know this is real. I know this is true. So you take a particular character like Billy Kimber or Jesse Eden is going to be in the, in the four series, but they're, they're real people who did really unlikely things. And the beauty of, of using reality, not like um, the reality of, in the 20s in Birmingham, there was industrial unrest and, and communism. And, and then thinking, well, okay, I'll do some, I'll invent a character who represents the industrial unrest. It's more finding the person who actually did it and finding out they were the weirdest character, you know, but they actually represented communism in Birmingham. But then look at the character. So, you know, you get somebody like Billy Kimber, who's a, in series one, I think he was a Birmingham gangster who ran away to Los Angeles and appeared in Charlie Chaplin films. You know, who would invent that? <laughs> you know, but that's what happened, you know. <laughs> so why Churchill? Uh, He's pivotal through, uh, through the early... And season. one of my heroes, but at this point... Yeah, would not get that impression from the show. No, no, but that's the, the point is that... And if, 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 uh, if you know, it... it if you were to look at the bigger picture, in other words, Churchill, I think, is a classic example of everything that made him bad and wrong through the 20s and 30s is the thing that saved the Western world in the 40s. In other words, absolute conviction that he was right, unwillingness to ever consider any other option, un an unrealistic view of his own power and authority. It's amazing how well you're describing Donald Trump there. Yes. <laughs> but I don't think he's ever going to save the Western world. 
But do you, you know, but that that aspect, I mean, there's been throughout the years, you know, the Churchill of World War II, the Gathering Storm, Churchill, et cetera, et cetera. You very much play him, and it's not as if he's a distant father figure. I mean, he, you know, he's on the phone with, with, with people. He's got Sam O'Neill in there, and he's telling him what to do and how he wants, how he wants Tommy dealt with because he's a war hero, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the tr- I mean, again, the truth is that he, in, in the time of the first series, he was a powerful person who was obsessed with Bolshevism and obsessed with the idea that Britain and the rest of Europe was going to go communist because the Russians had become communist. So he was convinced that was the big battle, and so he was doing everything he could to prevent Bolshevism from spreading to such an extent that in the end people around him said, you're insane, you've got Mm -hmm. to stop. And he got kicked out of office, he got deselected as an MP, and by the series, this series, series three, he uh, he was no one. He didn't have a, a, a role. But then he got re-elected and then did what he did. But he um, was always convinced of particular things and he always stuck to it and he never changed his mind. And that's what made him so dangerous in this period. But as I say, eventually, it's what was required. Now, for something like that, how, how do you research that? I mean, obviously, Churchill's one, like Abraham Lincoln's, one mm. of the most well-documented yeah. human beings to ever live. But how do you tell that story and then find the way to incorporate it into your fictional narrative? Um, I think that if you take some of the facts that are relevant and some of the facts that are not, and usually some of the facts that are not particularly relevant that are personal, then you can probably construct a scene that has got something going for it. Like, for example... I found out that he used to go by train from city to city and sit on the train and people would come to him on the train and have his meetings because he didn't get off the train. I mean, he was drunk a lot of the time, so he wouldn't, <laughs> he wouldn't get off the train. So, but that, that, that gives you a scene where he's on the train and Campbell comes in and they have the conversation on the train. It gives you an environment to do something that you're quite solid about because you know it's real and you're not asking an audience to believe something that isn't that didn't happen because it actually happened so i think reality is like every now and again it's like i suppose bouncing the ball every now and again you got to hit the hard thing and it will keep going you know now to speak about reality we have to talk about it you co-created who wants to be a millionaire yes that is the reality you want to want to give us a little brief on that one yeah i mean i used to write tv uh comedy and drama and stuff and in a place in a production company where if you walked up a flight of stairs, there were people who made, or people who were open to the ideas of game shows because we used to produce them. And so, you know, if you had an idea, you'd go up and discuss it. And we did two or three game shows that did well in Europe or in Britain. And then the, there were three of us who had talked a lot about an idea where of grains of rice, you know, the thing on the chessboard where you put one grain of rice on the first board, two on the next, four on the next, eight on the next, you keep going all across the chessboard, you end up with enough rice to cover the whole of India to the depth of about, you know, it's it's ridiculous thing about doubling stuff up. And we thought... That is fun. It, it can be. I just made it sound very boring. But, <laughs> um, but the idea was this, keep it simple and you ask a question, if you get it right, then you get the next question is you double it and then... But... The problem was that people kept, we, we sort of tried it out and people kept taking the money. Whenever we tried it, they would say, I've got, I don't know, a 200 pounds if it was a trial. I'm not going to take a risk, I'm not going to. Yeah. <laughs> so it, everything then was about how do you keep them playing? So it was phone a friend and ask the audience. And, all that. 
But the main, they didn't work. They, they worked as TV, but they didn't clinch it. The thing was, show them the question first, which was like, we hadn't that, thought now of Now that's it. breaking the rule. But, that's breaking the rule. It, until we showed them the question and gave them the options, they would always bail out. As soon as they saw the question, they'd go, I think I know that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then it's like, then the gamble happens because they're then thinking, I'm sure I know that. And then you, I mean, we didn't, we just thought it was, you know, it was going to be all right. And then the first transmission, it was the first transmission, I think, or second, and we're watching in the green room and there's a, a, a woman comes on and she asked, gets asked, it's for quite a lot of money and she gets asked the question. She goes, I think my dad will know this. So she phones her dad and we're all going, and she says, dad, what's that? And her dad says, I don't know. And the look on her face was like, what? You've let me down. You know, my dad, for the first time in my life, has let me down. And we just were all getting closer and closer to the cellar. And it, you just thought, this has actually got something going for it. You know, it was amazing. And then it went off like a... Were you surprised at how it just went off all over the world? It was, I mean, I was with my kids in um, TGI Fridays in Covent Garden in London. And in them, now that's, a, that's a culture clash right there. I know. <laughs> and they used to have on the wall in the gents, they would always have the front cover of that day's, um, what's it called, the paper? Uh, the American National New York paper. Post? No, the National. New York Times? USA Today. And they would have the front, and on the front cover it says, um, the, was it something like, the game that saved the mouse. Wow. Because it was about Disney yeah. and about the thing and about the fact that it had gone, I thought, What? And it was about millionaire. And I sort of missed out a bit on what was going on and then realized it was massive in America. Mm -hmm. I mean, at one point, Regis was on like three or four nights a week. It was crazy. I know. Um, But talking about that, let's let's move to your... So how did you transition from that to what has now ended up with Allied, the World War Z sequel, directing another film with Tom, and Peaky? I mean, that's... A lot of people would have stopped there. They'd been like, I made my millionaire money. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was... I was doing stuff... At the same time, I used to have two, basically two, not even laptops, then desktops of one I was doing novels, which did all right, you know, and, and one which was doing television and game shows and things. So after Millionaire, it sort of helped to give me a bit of space to do the stuff I wanted to do, like Dirty Pretty Things and things. So, you know, it, it which you received an Oscar nomination. I mean, but it just gives affirmation. You, but it just gives you time, I think, to to and for a long time here, every meeting was about million began about millionaire, mm. and then we talk about scripts. You know, I mean that's gone away now, but it was for a what for a long time. Well, I think maybe it's because a lot of people don't know about. That. No, they don't. No, it's no, and we're going to make sure they do. <laughs> <laughs> so to talk about, let's you know. You mentioned Lock with Tom. You know, it, it, it's a fascinating film. It's one of my favorite films of that year. And especially because, yes, you can clap. That's right. Clap, clap your hearts out. Um, it almost feels like another one of those, what we are talking about before. It, it, breaks, it, 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 obey, it breaks the laws, and in this case, it breaks the rules. It's a guy in a car. I mean, it's not, and it doesn't turn into something else at one point. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't Steve McQueen his way out of there, you know? So I want to get a sense of what was that like just simply as a director making that film, blocking it, putting it together? Um, it was, I'd sort of become convinced that there was another way of telling a story or experimenting with ways of telling stories and also trying to strip away everything that wasn't the story, in other words, the dialogue. And so I thought, it, purely as an experiment you get one person and 
what I wanted was at the start of whatever the story was, they have everything, and at the end, they have nothing. And I thought, you can't just look at someone, so they need to be moving. So the journey idea came. I like the idea that it was about a baby being born, um, and so the story started to put itself together. But um, now you can have someone on their own but available to everyone they know because of the cell phone mm-hmm. and the, the hands-free car phone, which I think has changed the nature of what's possible in terms of drama because, as in the film and as we all do in our lives, you know, you have the terribly emotional call and the furious argument and then that call ends and then you look, oh, and it's work and you have to change and become that person and then you have to become that person. So you're watching someone become different people because we're all different people to the different people we know in the world. And so you can actually watch that happen in a pure way without having the other person there. Um, and so it's just a question of, of not boring people. So I wanted by, I, I told myself that after six minutes in, you need to have people forget that this is a bloke in a car. You know, you've got to them, you've got to get them invested in what the problem is. Uh, and I, you know, it's a quick, a quickish way is, is to say about the baby being born and and the breakup of the of the marriage. So the stakes are high, but it's never anything that would even make the local paper. You know, it's nothing's happening that's gonna. There's nobody murdered. There's no drug deal. There's no, a lot of people said they thought there was going to be a body under the concrete. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? Well, because they're, because they're expecting that. Yeah, because exactly. that's sort of like, oh, it's the Breaking Bad moment. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and look, I love Breaking Bad, yeah. but those there are those, those shows yeah. they've now set up a yeah. trope that happens. You know, yeah. oh, it turns out he's a drug dealer. It yeah, turns yeah. out there's a murder. Mm. You know, that sort of yeah. thing. So that's because I, I kept thinking that I kept thinking there was going to be mm. that other call, or mm. there was going to be something when when he got off the, uh, mm. off the motorway, because it felt like we're so used to that. Mm. At one point, that becomes the the border of the mm. box. I mean, I, I wanted to almost perversely do it as a challenge where you take... I wanted him to be the most ordinary person in Britain. There's nothing diff- weird about him or strange. He's got two kids, he's married. And I wanted his job to be the most boring job. So he's, he works with concrete, which is the <laughs> least, you know, the least interesting thing in the world. And can you make this man's life and concrete interesting? <laughs> Um, you know, as a as a cha- almost as a intellectual challenge, and and did it succeed in your opinion? Well, I I, I was uh, when we did it, and even when we put it together, we weren't even sure it was a film. But what was good, what I toured with it in in the states and in Europe as well. But you could see in things like this where men who had been dragged kicking and screaming to this thing about a man in the car. I thought, oh, uh, but it was men of a certain age who were responding most to it. And it was great because they'd come up after and say, that's the journey my dad didn't make or that's the journey I made. And it was really strange. You, it really struck a chord with people whose chords don't normally get struck, if that's, a, <laughs> if that's an expression. Now, let's talk quickly about some of the other films. Eastern Promises with the great David Cronenberg. Um, you're working on the World War Z uh, sequel, and you also have been do- obviously Dirty Pretty Things, which did get you, uh, which did get you an Oscar nomination. As you move between film and TV, what do you like more? TV, really? Yeah. <clears throat> oh, I'm glad because I'm a TV critic. I'm all about that. <laughs> no, I mean film's great, and, and if I think if you're directing the film yourself, then it's more of like an, a, an object. It's like a thing where you start it and you finish it, and there it is. It's done. It's either good or bad, but. It, 
you've directed it. It's it's what was in your head, or as close as you can get to what was in your head, and out it goes, and you know, it's gone. With TV, there's something about what's happening in TV that there is an incredible loyalty to like these box set things, you know, where people, unlike with a film, people say, you've got to watch this thing. It's really good. You've got to watch it. And they really, they're really part of it. And on social media, you get people who really, really love it. And I don't know why that is, but there is a, a stronger affinity between the audience and the thing. Well, I think part of it now and in the past say, I mean, it's, it's funny to think that three years ago, Netflix didn't have any original programming. Mm. And now they're technically the biggest television network in the world. But I think part of it is, is it's, it's not just it's the investment, but it's also the satisfaction of the execution. I do think in a world where the lights are paid, the, the, the bills are paid in Hollywood by superhero movies and action movies. They just are. Um, and you can only do so much in 90 minutes to 120 minutes. Mm -hmm. What you can do, say in a season of Peaky, six hours, you can tell a very detailed story and you can lay seeds for another story. Mm. And I think that that's part of what connects people to it. I mean, I know a lot of people who even even when it's not on Netflix show will watch will will DVR a whole series of something mm. to watch it. Now yeah. it, it's literally changed the the way in which Absolutely. your work is experienced. And uh, it, it's uh, it's good because you can make a character unsympathetic for much longer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and then the then is that the, writers challenge one hundred and one. Well, it, but it's also like that. You know the. Redemption of the Lost Sheep is so much more satisfying if if he's been bad for a long time. In a film, twenty minutes in, you you got to start getting him nice. You know, <laughs> he's got to do something good. But with TV, you can have him. You can have someone bad or doing bad things, or you can have an anti-hero for much longer. And it's much more like life, I think. Do you, you know, going into season four of PK, and we don't want spoilers, but there there does always seem to be a hint now that the Shelbys are going to America. Well, the, in the third series, it was a possibility, but I thought, let's go east instead. So there was the Russian thing. But I've got a, I know what's going to happen in four, and I know rather than they... You know what's going to happen in five? No, not yet. You don't plan it? When you were creating the show, how did you plan it out as an arc? I don't really plan it in that way. I, I, I have a destination for the end of the six episodes, but along the way... I always try to give authority to what happened most recently. In other words, if in episode three you have something happens in the dialogue between two people that means that it's different to what you thought, it's a pain in the neck. But you have you have to reverse engineer back to make that work, and it actually makes you look clever, as opposed to being clever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just it's just something that that. Something comes up in a conversation between two characters, and you think, "Oh my god!" And you think that's what that's the way it should go. And then it's it, it's hard. It's a lot of work. But then you have to go back and justify that, or set it up, or not set it up, but make it feasible. Um, and so I think to have a planned route. That I went to see um, years and years ago. There was a philosopher called Edward de Bono who was talking about creativity, and he said. If you go on a journey from your house to somewhere you've never been, it gets more and more difficult because you're going to strange places. If you go on a journey from over there to your home, it gets easier and easier and easier. So he said, if you're being creative, whatever you're doing, pick a random thing like a cabbage or a fish or a whatever, anything. Doesn't matter what it, it is. Like you're getting very Douglas Adams all of a sudden. Oh, really? <laughs> and then go back 
to where so start starting the scene with something that's nothing to do with anything to do with what you're talking about and in the end that thing might disappear but the route back is quite will make it feel different basically so rather than have a logical planned step-by-step -step route from beginning to end have a vague-ish idea of where you're going and then see what happens because I, I talk to a lot of showrunners and creators who will who will admit after a time, they say, well, I kind of see this as a five-season five show. You know, I'd love to get picked up for mm. 10, 15, but I see it. The story I'm telling is five seasons, and, and they've planned that out, I, I gather, as part of the pitch that they went to the broadcaster or outlet with, and they said, look, here's how I see this going. Mm -hmm. You didn't do that. With, with You just didn't. It, no. I mean, the BBC, thank, thankfully, don't operate like that. They, they just let you go. You know, I think the, the the beauty of the BBC is that they're very good at doing nothing, of leaving you alone. <laughs> you know, they are. And, you that know, can be taken in so many different ways. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. You know, the, I remember in the old television centre, there used to be doors in this circular thing. And they were just numbered doors. And no one knew what the people inside that office did. No one knew what they did. But they left them alone, and then sort of somebody be in there twenty years out, and they've invented radar or something you know, <laughs> at the BBC. Yeah. <laughs> but they, it was like that, and they would let them go. And so the BBC don't ask you really to say, "Okay, what's going?" They they ask you what the idea is, and then they say, "Great, we look forward to seeing it." So, what have been what have been some of the <laughs> things you've learned from doing three seasons of Peaky that went into Taboo? Oh yeah, um, I think you've got to be careful about killing people because <laughs> um, you might need them um, writers rule 102 <laughs> <laughs> and you can regret it you know and so but I think it was you obviously are not a big Game of Thrones fan do you know I've, <laughs> I've, I've seen about 10 minutes of, but my my when my son was much younger I didn't know what it was and he used to say can I have Game of Thrones box set and say yeah of course you can thinking it was a kid's program <laughs> Thinking it was for like young kids, and then an actor from Game of Thrones came available for Peaky, and they said, "If, if you want to watch, some, you know, some of his work, he's the brothel keeper." <laughs> I said, "What do you mean brothel keeper?" You know, I thought it was like kids' program. This is not a game show. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to be king uh, of Westeros? <laughs> I don't know. But no, I, I, I mean, it's but no, what I'm saying is, I mean, they kill everyone. I, I know. know they do, yeah, <laughs> I think that's a contractual thing. Uh. <laughs> so to look at that though so one of the things for taboo is be careful who you kill yeah but also i mean um it's a it's a very different thing to peaky but um keeping lots of plates spinning is good fun is probably you can, you know you can if you if you're careful you can keep lots of things going one of the things we'd keep going is getting some questions from you guys so please put your hands up and we will ask let's start with this lady here yes you Please stand up. Hi, um, I want to ask about um, um, from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire to Peaky uh, Blinders. I'm actually going to have my first pitch meeting coming up pretty soon. So, what advice do you have, and how has the pitch game yeah. changed from then to now? I mean, I'm not an expert. I, I always feel it's good to pretend you have options. Um, <laughs> you know, to look as if. I could be in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I mean, the, 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 there's lots of people who would want this, but here's your chance. You know. Um, but also, um, I think it, if the enthusiasm for the idea is genuine, then it doesn't. You can't make a mistake. I think. Do you know what I mean? Even if you mix up the word, it doesn't matter because it's obviously what you really believe. Um, and with Millionaire, the pitch 
only worked, we tried four years, and it only worked when we played with the head of ITV, which is the sort of commercial network, for real money, for his money. <laughs> and with the offer of giving him money. And then he got it, and then he got it. Ma'am? Uh, can I have you wait for the mic, please, for the recording? Oh, sure. Thank you. We can just project. I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do it for the better for the room. Um, first of all, I want to thank the Writers Foundation for putting this amazing event on, and I want to thank you. It's so generous of you to give your time with all your projects. I, I live for these these events, So, and thank you for moderating. Um, my question is about the philosopher de Bowman that you were making a point about, oh. about that the root much... Can you explain that? I didn't quite get what you are saying. Just the idea that, and again, maybe even to the idea of writer's block, that you think, what am I going to do about this um, problem? You know, in a in a scene or in a plot problem, and it's all it, it it seems unsolvable. Is sometimes to go to a completely random, non-related thing. Can you give an example. I, I can't. It's it's difficult. Um, I can't think of an example of when I've done it, but I know that oh, to begin a scene, to begin a scene with something that is nothing to do with what the scene is supposed to be about, okay. and. It doesn't matter what it is. Okay. Um, so let's say a chair, uh, somebody sits on the chair and the leg breaks. Okay. For, I'm just making it up. But it's a really tense scene or a love scene or people, uh, someone's going to tell someone they love them. And they sit down and the chair breaks mm -hmm. for no reason. You know, it sort of changes everything about the scene. And in the end, you might get rid of the chair breaking, but you might have got something from the response to the chair oh. breaking that you can keep. It's, and it's a question of how far back can you salvage what's there. Okay. It, it, I think it just gets rid of the tension of, I've got to make this relevant. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, can you tell us about the brilliant decision to use contemporary music for Peakies? Well, it didn't, at the, at the time it didn't. Was that a brilliant decision or was it a brilliant accident? A brilliant accident huh? or an accident. It was, um, at the time it didn't seem like a decision. I think often when things are edited, in the edit room, you put on the music you would most like to have on that, just for the sake of it. Um, and then when it comes to the real thing, there was nothing of that era that would be appropriate. It wasn't even jazz age, really. Mm -hmm. It was too early because it was 1919, the first series. Well, it was Music Hall, wasn't it? But it was, yeah, Not I mean, you, vaudeville, no, really, yeah. you couldn't really. But then um, it just felt completely right because the whole idea from the beginning was not to make this period. In other words, the people involved, even though it's 1919, are as they love or hate or are jealous or are friendly or are unfriendly in exactly the same as way that, as we are, because they would have been, because they're just the same as us. So there's no barrier between the way they act and talk and the way we act and talk. So therefore, any music that's going to reflect can be contemporary. And I think it worked better than we thought it would. Are we, will we one day see PJ Harvey or Nick Cave show up as a cameo? I uh, know it may be um, Tom Waits might show up one day. Ah. Yeah. Wow. You maybe have Tom Waits and Leonard Cohen as two guys that are trying to make a the, bet. I mean, the, the Leonard Cohen re recording a song for us is one of the highlights of my career. Sir, yes. Uh, Hold on, they're going to bring you the microphone. And please stand up. Oh. <laughs> Just curious, with all the directing and writing several different TV shows and films, how much sleep do you get? What is your process <laughs> for doing all this? I, I work early in the morning. 
is my advice. Do you have, do you have a cutoff? Do you work from, say... Okay. I remember once reading a story about per President Carter, who kind of has a cottage industry in books, if you go look mm -hmm. on Amazon. And, and he talks about, like, he gets up basically at 6.30 in the morning, makes some coffee, writes from 7 till noon, and yeah. then goes off and solves malaria in Africa for the rest of the day. <laughs> I don't solve malaria, but I do the coffee and the writing. And then you, But you cut <laughs> off at a certain point? Yeah, I, it's normally sort of 2 or 3 or something, but I start early if possible, and then... I mean, coming here is always good because <clears throat> you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning because of jet lag and the phone doesn't ring and then you're finished by 10 and then you can spend your day doing whatever. Now, had that was that something you, you, you got to eventually or was that something you started out doing? I don't know. I, I always... I think that if, if you really want to write what you're writing, which is always important, you know, if you're struggling to write something, it, it, it ain't, it's not going to work. Uh, if you don't like what you're writing, it's not going to work. Well, it'll work in a way. It'll look like something all right, but it won't be. Um, but if you're if you're interested and want to do it, then I find if I wake up, I, I can't wait to start, yeah. and I can't stop. And and if it gets, you know, I've I've been in situation. I've shaved twice <laughs> because I've forgotten because it's in. You know, once it's in there and you're really into it and. You know, you, you just forget what's really going on and you just can't wait to get into it. We've gotten lots of questions from this side. We need to get some questions from over here. So let's go, that gentleman back there in the black sweater. Oh my God, Mike's on both sides, high tech. Uh, can you talk about the appeal of the anti-hero and what it means to you as a writer of those characters and what you think the effect it has on the audience and why it's appealing? Um, I think it feel it whether it is or not I don't know but it feels more real that the hero is deeply flawed because we all sort of know that's the case and that somebody who does something good isn't necessarily a good person all the time and I think the the interesting character is somebody who does bad things for a good reason you know and and they've got a good reason for doing that bad thing and I think that's when we feel sympathy and, and also honestly that, you know, watching um, someone who works in insurance, working in insurance, we we can do that ourselves. We want to watch someone who's free. And I think freedom is often the thing that's the fizz about everything. In other words, that person, that gangster, isn't getting on a train to go to work and he doesn't have a boss. <laughs> And he can do what he wants. And I think that's what we sort of feel attracted to, I think. Sir. There's the de delay. <laughs> A little bit. Eastern Promises. How much uh, research did you do, you know, regarding the tattoos and the, the customs and all that? Were you really passionate about, about those things before? the movie or did you just you know is this a sly way of asking him how much time he spends in bathhouses <laughs> basically uh research hey, you stop like researching <laughs> i mean the, the idea for the story about the russian uh underworld was there and then any any research into the russian world will take you into the Zikoni and the, the tattoos but the person who did the research to find out what actually it would look like was vigo who really got into it. I mean, he really got into the whole business of it. I mean, the reality is that that, that it's sort of an old-fashioned mafia, that the code of honor. But it was, it was, I think, important to have Vigo as a representative of that. It's almost like a dying thing. 
that you know that that uh, very traditional um, Russian gang culture. The new culture doesn't deal with that, but it was more interesting to have that. And and he went to Russia and he met people and he looked at the tattoos and and how they did it. So he was the one that really got into it. Sir. Who's um, who's your favorite career, uh, character you ever created and maybe saw an execution of on something or on a script that hasn't come out yet or something that's never seen the light of yeah. day? The most fun you've ever had writing a character, basically. I mean, it's always the, the, the thing you've done most recently. So there's a thing that I'm going to be doing next year, which I'm, I feel is, is the most sort of balanced in the right place. You know, it, it's the most solid sort of thing but i really liked and i can't remember the name of the character um in uh, dirty pretty things played by audrey tattoo because she was i mean she was brilliant the way that she did what she did with that character but it was quite an interesting journey to get that character done because it was quite a complicated one i think the thing is that because everyone in that film was either African or Turkish or whatever, that um, you can get away with a lot. But I feel as if I didn't try and get away with it. In other words, people can forgive mistakes for some reason if she's Turkish and you don't quite know if she's... But I think I got her right. Has there ever been of you looked back on a character, say, from Peaky or from one of the films and and said, I wish I had done that differently. There there was a point here where I wish I had made made him go left, not right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't tend to watch anything that I've done um, again. But you just watch it once in the edit room and that's it? I mean, with TV, actually, it's quite different. I can watch that because I watch it with the kids and stuff. But Mm. with films, I can't can't watch them again. So I I, I try and put them away if I can. Um, And and it's it's like like work. It's a horrible experience, I think. Like Don't being, go to your own shows. No, it's like being at work. It's like working. Well, it is work because you're you're. I mean, but that would be it. I would assume you're watching. You're like, oh, I really but wish we had more light it's that work, day. But pointless because mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do. But do you, yeah. do you? But I was wondering more. Do you find that when you do that, you look at it and you're like, oh, you know what? I did that in Peaky, and I'm gonna make sure we don't do that in Taboo. Sort of. I mean, I don't know about other writers and what how they feel, but everything I've watched that I've done, I hate it can't bear it i mean i'm used to it now but the first experience was with dirty pretty things and when i saw that i just thought this is this well that's it so (laughs) luckily i've got that who wants to be a millionaire in my back pocket (laughs) exactly because i don't don't know why but i've got used to it now so you don't feel that but it was like a nightmare and the funny enough there was um what's the name of the author who wrote um fever pitch nick nick he was for some reason one of the screenings and I'm sitting behind him and he's watching a very early cut of Dirty Pretty Things and he stood up and he said either I'm mystified or I'm misty eyed and I couldn't tell (laughs) and I couldn't tell which one it was and I thought the whole thing is in that either he's got no idea what the hell that was about or he's really emotionally touched and I never found out over here, some more questions, ma'am. Hold on, the run, run, oh, bring the mic. Thank you. Um, 
Stephen, I just want to thank you so much for Peaky Blinders. It's the best writing and acting and, and wardrobe um, of television I've seen probably in the last 20 years. But I wanted to ask you one question. I've been waiting and waiting till this night to ask you, and I think it's on behalf of a lot of Peaky Blinder fans. Why, oh why, did you kill off Grace? Oh. <laughs> or did I? Um. <laughs> you totally set that up. <laughs> No, I'm joking. No, um, You're not entirely joking. Um, there, you know, there are. There's always um, practical considerations whenever you've got a big cast and people get the work, and, and so you always have to consider what's available and what is not available. So sometimes the twists and turns are um, are. You're sort of obliged to do them, sometimes not. But, I mean, I, I couldn't envisage Tommy Shelby living a domestic life with the woman he loves because that's always going to be snatched away from him. And so it was taken away. But life's like that. Mm. So cold. Ouch. Sorry. So cold. <laughs> yes, ma'am, uh, in the red T-shirt there. Hey, there we go, Mike. Hi. Um, I was wondering, what were some of the challenges that you faced when you were writing Locke, where um, y you had, you're trying to have the the audience in a darkened room watching one guy on the screen for 90 minutes, um, and to keep them enthralled for the entire time, um, and sort of, uh, and and also break the rules while while you're doing that of like story and structure. Yeah, I mean, it, it helps to have. The, the whole concept of phone calls and the idea that this here's a person who is available to everybody he knows at all times. So when that phone rings, it could be anybody. So it helps that it's not a linear narrative. It's not the same people calling about the same subject. It's lots of different things. Um, and so... And there's a point A and point B. Yeah, I mean, in in a very simple sense, it's what the rules insist upon, which was sort of my own joke to myself, which is, it, you know, what's the character's journey? Well, it's from Birmingham to London, you know, and, and that's his journey, and what's his arc, you know, and that. But the the um, the phone call punctuation helps to every every phone call ends without a conclusion, so you've always got a sort of tiny little cliffhanger that you can keep going from one to the other. But I didn't. I wasn't sure it would work at all. I mean, because I mean, Tom's a great actor, so therefore you can keep the audience looking. When did you realize it did work? Was there a point in the edit yeah. room or a screening where screening. where Mr. Hornby wasn't present yes. or something like that? I'm, I'm like when did you go? Okay, I, people will sit through this. They'll watch it. It works. I mean, it's very hard to ever say that it works. But amongst ourselves, we liked it. But that means nothing. And then I think we showed it to family and friends, and they go, oh, it's lovely. That means nothing. Somebody said it was lovely? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, people, it's people heartwarming it's movie. It's great. It's great. And, but you don't, you know, you never know. I think it's when we showed it to people who were not involved. And it was, as I say, it was the people who responded most were the people who usually don't respond, which I felt was really great. We have time for one or two more questions. At the back, sir. Well, wow, that was so convenient. You were right there with the mic. <laughs> Hi. Uh, earlier, you touched a little on some of the technical differences between film characters and TV characters. Uh, do you have a different approach uh, when you're designing one versus the other? Um, 
I don't know whether it's a pro because in the approach to it, it's it's probably the same. In other words, here is this character that I'm going to create, and it's going to be this fictional thing. I think in the execution, <clears throat> once the character, once you got the character in your head, you can be a bit more leisurely about that character. Like as I say, you can keep them unsympathetic. You can you can have them do things that you know, you've got time to have them do things that really add little touches to. To who that character is, whereas in film, everything has a purpose. You know, everything has to uh, feed the plot. Everything, because you haven't got time not to do that. You haven't got time to waste. Whereas in television, you can be a bit more. Um, you know, you can be slow about it. We we'll take one more question, ma'am. Hold on, they're going to bring a microphone to you. Yes, the microphone. Okay, last question. I would like to know. Out of pressure. Just uh, better be good. Better be good. Yeah. What? Okay. Better be what, great. What, what movies and TV shows shaped you and made you want to do this? American, British, whatever kind. What influenced you to do this? Great question. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I know I don't watch a lot of television and film anymore, just because of kids and and writing and stuff. So, a lot of the brilliant stuff that I know is out there, I haven't. Not because I don't want to, but I haven't seen in terms of TV. I mean, I go back to when I was a kid watching stuff, and it was westerns for some reason. Um, you know, even like John Wayne westerns, but very specific sort of um, solid character that didn't have an arc. He just went bang, 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 and he just did the things that he did. At the beginning and at the end, you know, like the searches or something like that, and that character didn't really change. And um, and I think it's it, films like that, obviously Godfather and and Seven Samurai and all of those things, which it feels it, like there's a lot of Get Carter, the original version in Peaky. A great, I mean, I, I wish, but I mean, it's a brilliant film. Just you know, for one thing, just the complete sometimes the complete lack of sentimentality. Yeah, and and I mean, there's it's the memorable images in that. Of, are there but I don't know I, I always try if possible to if possible refer to real dialogue real life rather than trying to you know fuse together different films or different television series but certain things have actually become part of real life like Godfather have changed the way that people think about lots of things so if you can take that, any of those things as a template, it's great. But yeah, I mean, and, and comedy is something that I aspire to as well. So any comedy that, is, that, is, that works, I'm filled with admiration for that. Well, thank you so much, Stephen.